eternal being ever becoming a small lump of cells inside one of his own creations. Even while his power kept Mary's lungs breathing and her heart beating, he fully subjected himself to be sustained and grown by her body. It did not have to happen this way. Jesus could have easily took on human flesh as an adult, but he loved us enough to fully become one of us, experience everything we experience in order to provide us salvation from ourselves. And that is what Jesus did. He became human and took on flesh. He had no beauty or majesty to set him apart. He would be despised, rejected, wounded, afflicted, smitten by God, crushed for our sin, and killed to take on our punishment. This was the life that Jesus willingly chose for us, and it all started with a baby born in a stable. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because there is simply nothing worth celebrating more than the perfect gift that he was. We celebrate in joy because he brought hope to a world that had none. We celebrate because God is with us, Emmanuel. We celebrate because Jesus is worthy. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human forth, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you took on flesh and became one of us. We thank you that you saw us in our wretched state. We thank you that you were not content to let us suffer and die alone. Jesus, we thank you that you came and became our hope, our joy, our peace, our savior. Jesus, we thank you that you came and suffered and died for us. Jesus, I pray that this morning or that tonight you would just open our hearts. You would allow us to feel and know the impact of you being born and coming to save us. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, Merry Christmas, Red Tree. How are we this evening? It is definitely this evening, I can assure you. Uh, we are, man, isn't it? such a privilege to gather like this like all of this is just incredible and what what a privilege it is to gather and celebrate the gospel like this and and celebrate the lord jesus i assure you that that he is the reason that we are here jesus is the reason that we get to gather together like this uh, and so tonight our only goal is to see and to bask in his glory that's it we just come here to see and to bask in the glory of Jesus Christ, which is a good reminder for me. I, I have to confess, this is my 10th, I think, Christmas Eve sermon at Red Tree, and every year I feel this crazy temptation to come up with 
something new and exciting on Christmas Eve, to either do something super creative or, or what I usually do, because I'm not very creative, is to go to a text that no one would expect me to preach a Christmas message from, and I do that typically. And, and God reminded me this week just how dumb that is. Uh, I, was, I was traveling almost all this week, and, and I had the opportunity to sit with a a, a family uh, that, that were covenant members here at Red Tree, and they moved away for work. And, and we were just sitting over dinner and, and reflecting on everything that God has done over the course of the last 10 years through, through our church. And they said something that was just really good for, for my soul. They said, you know, the thing that we appreciate the most about Red Tree, the thing that has stood out to us throughout the years is that you always preach the same message. It said week in and week out, the message is the same. Sure, it comes from a different text every week, but, 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 but essentially it's just the meat and potatoes of the gospel. And that was such a good reminder for my soul this week as I was trying to get super creative for tonight to be reminded that there is nothing that I can do to make this message more profound than it already is. The message that God stepped out of heaven and took on the form of his own creation to die, to destroy our enemies, to deliver us from the slavery of sin and to give us eternal life with him forever. How do you make that message any more compelling than it is? The answer is you can't. You can't. And so my, my task tonight is not to be creative or clever or, or even to tell you anything new. My job is to present you with some things that are gloriously true with an understanding that we are completely and utterly dependent on God to awaken our hearts to the truth. You see, one of the main themes tonight is the sovereign goodness of God and salvation. The sovereign goodness of our God in salvation. If we're really going to grasp that, we have to go into the discussion with an understanding that the eye-opening, death-defying, eternity-altering work of salvation belongs to God and to God alone. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and there is nothing that I can say to improve upon God's work to save his people. Nothing. My job is simply to point to the glory and the greatness of God in salvation and then get out of the way as he works. You guys with me in that? So in light of that, here's what I want to do over the next 25 minutes. Yeah, I said 25 minutes. Uh, if this actually happens, it's going to be a Christmas miracle. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you that right now. But real quick, I want to unpack what's probably the best known Christmas text in the entire Bible. It's, it's not going to be fancy or complicated. I just want to read it, proclaim some truths from it, and then I want to pray that God does his saving work in all of us. Does that sound fair? So if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you this evening, not to worry. We have copies strewn throughout the room. You can use one of those house Bibles. And if you do use a house Bible, Luke chapter 2 is on page 556, so you can find your way. While you're getting there, I'm going to pray for 
uh, our time together in the Word of God. We, we, we desperately need God to do this work in us. And so tonight in my message, I just want to bookend this with prayer. I'm going to pray that God would help us. And then at the end, I'm going to pray that God would calcify these truths in our hearts tonight for His glory. So pray with me. Father, we love You and we are so thankful, God, that we can gather together uh, like this to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray um, God, I pray that you would focus our hearts for these next few minutes on what is true. God, that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that brings you glory, that exalt, exalts your son Jesus. We pray that he would be lifted high. And I pray, God, that that would, that that would start um, a, a, just a radical work in our hearts, God, of, of obedience and trust and worship and submission as we see, we see our risen Savior Jesus, God, that we would that we would run to you. And so God, please do your work tonight for your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, before we read the entirety of our text, and that, by the way, is gonna be Luke chapter two, verses one uh, through 14. Before we read that, I wanna start by reading verse 14, because to my mind, verse 14 is central in our text. It's, it's, it's where I think we need to begin our time, and it's also where we need to end our time. And the reason that's true is because it's all about the glory of God. Now, if you haven't spent a lot of time in the scripture, one of the most important things that I could tell you is that life isn't about you, it's about God. I'm going to say that one more time because it's super important. Life is not about you, life is about God. God does not exist for us, we exist for Him and for his glory. In fact, I would say that the entire human experience as authored by God is bookended and sustained by his glory. So he created us, not because he needed to, but so that he would get glory. When we ran from him, trying to get glory for ourselves, which is the essence of our sin, he pursued us so that he would get glory. One day he will end all suffering and oppression. He will restore everything to its right and proper place, and those with whom he is pleased will exist forever in his glory. In other words, God's glory is central to everything. So I'd like to start by reading verse 14, and then we'll bring it back at the end to verse 14, and I want us to keep that verse on the forefronts of our hearts and our minds as we work our way through the larger text. So this is what Luke 2.14 says. You have this heavenly host that is assembled. And here's what they say. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't that sound incredible? Experiencing the peace that only God can give because he is pleased with you. That sounds incredible, does it not? The question is, how, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, let's read verse 1. Let's work our way through. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, 
when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He was registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory, here's the glory of God now, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, it's Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is the word of the Lord. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I want to walk through these familiar verses and just point out some things that are true. And I really want to encourage you, whether, whether this is new information for you or, or not, I want to encourage you to listen to these truths in a fresh way because this text teaches us some pretty incredibly profound truths about the character and the nature of God. And it also teaches us how God saves his people, which is a subject that could not be more relevant for us tonight. How God saves his people is incredibly relevant for us as we sit here tonight. So first, let's consider what's happening in these first few verses. Luke says that a registration, kind of like a census, was decreed from Caesar Augustus at the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why would Luke take the time to point out those details and those names? Well, I think there are at least two reasons, and they're both important. The, the first reason is because Luke wants us to understand that these events are rooted in history. In other words, these things actually happened. Jesus was actually born in an actual place at a specific time in a specific way. This account is true. But by the way, this is something that Luke does, does often in his writing. He, even if you just look at the first few chapters of the gospel of Luke, he, he lists all kinds of historical names. Why does he do that? Because again, he, he wants us to know this isn't like Greek or, or Roman mythology. This is real. This is true. This actually happened. I, I mean, saying in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria would be like us saying during the second month of Abraham Lincoln's presidency, the first shot was fired in the American Civil War. It's an event that's tied to a prominent historical figure. I think that's very intentional by Luke, and it's very important because it roots the birth of Jesus at a specific time in a specific place in history. But the second reason I think Luke points out the details about 
this decreed registration is because I believe he means to communicate to us a couple of really, really important things about God. Now, this is where I want to slow down and camp for a while because this really gets to the heart of who God is and how God saves. Track with me on this. The, the, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, as Luke records them, are the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. We know, in fact, that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament, which is absolutely incredible. But what we see here specifically is a fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. Now, I want you to listen to just a few verses from chapter 5 of Micah. You don't have to turn there with me. I'll just read them for you. But this is verses 2 through 5. Listen. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem because God had foretold hundreds of years earlier that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now that's awesome. But that's not the crazy part. What, what's really amazing is what this tells us about God. Listen, God could have fulfilled this prophecy in Micah 5 in any number of different ways. I mean, it certainly would have been a lot easier to choose a woman who already just lived in Bethlehem, which is probably what you and I would have done. We would have picked somebody who was already there. Or if, if God was determined to use Mary, he could have gotten she and Joseph to Bethlehem in a more subtle way, maybe an easier way, but he didn't. Luke goes out of his way to tell us that God did something to fulfill this prophecy that impacted, get this, the entire civilized world. And he did it using the most powerful ruler on earth, Caesar Augustus. Now, let me be very clear. This decree did not originate with Caesar. This decree originated from the hand of the God who is in complete and total control over everything. We know that because our God rules the nations. If you don't know that, know that now. Our God rules the nations. Psalm 22, 28 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Acts 17, 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, and he determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Our God is in complete and sovereign control 
over everything and he rules the nations. That has been true throughout history from day one. If you read the Old Testament and the history of God's dealing with his people with those type of eyes, you'll see that pattern over and over and over again. Joseph's enslavement and imprisonment and his rise to power in Egypt so that God could rescue and deliver his people. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians coming in and taking captive the people of God so that the dispersion would happen and the Israelites would be spread all throughout the civilized world. The Hellenization of the known world with Alexander the Great so that there was a common language of Koine Greek so when the Bible was written and and spread across it could be read by many. The list goes on and on and on and on of God using rulers and nations to accomplish his purposes. Now here's what this tells us. Remember how all of this is about the glory of God, right? This isn't just about God getting things done. It's not just about him checking boxes off of a list. This is about God accomplishing his purposes in such a way that brings him the most glory because he's worthy of all glory. What we see here is God accomplishing his purposes and fulfilling prophecy by going big, by doing something global, by impacting the entire civilized world just to get two people to Bethlehem. Now that's pretty amazing, but that's not even the most amazing part because the details that Luke gives here tell us something about the character and the nature of God in showing us how he saves. Now, this is where things get mind-blowing and have practical implications for our lives. I want you to take everything that we just said about the sovereign control of God over the nations, okay? how he's working to accomplish his purposes, and he doesn't miss a single detail, right? God knows the number of stars in the universe and also the number of grains of sand on every beach throughout the world. But then you read this account in Luke chapter 2, and if we didn't know better, it sure looks like God missed a really important detail here. Right? Here, here we have this decree that affect, affects millions of people. As a result, Mary and Joseph roll into Bethlehem, and just as they're getting ready to check into the inn, God forgot to reserve them a room. How is that possible? Are you kidding me? I mean, we're talking about the God who controls nations, who moves the hearts of kings and rulers who invented things like gravity, this God who has clearly orchestrated the events uh, uh, to, to get these two people to Bethlehem. He couldn't provide a room in the inn for Mary and Joseph? Well, of course he could have. He, he could have provided a room. He could have provided the entire inn. He could have had the most prominent, wealthy person with the biggest house in Bethlehem show up and offer his entire home, but he didn't. In fact, now listen, he did the opposite. God made certain that there was no room at the inn, which means, now I want you to get this. It means that God purposed for his son to be born in a stable. And after he was born, to be placed in a stinking 
nasty feeding trough used for animals. You, you, you know, we have these, these manger scenes. And, and it's always this kind of cute, nice wooden trough with fresh hay and a certain glow about it. It probably smells like cinnamon or something amazing. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of the manger. It wouldn't have been like that at all. It wouldn't have been like that at all. This is where the animals eat. It would have been jack nasty. That's an official term. Just straight up nasty. And it would have smelled disgusting. And this was God's design for the birth of his son, our Savior, into the world. Now, I'm going to suggest that tells us something really, really, really profound about how God saves his people. And this is something that we must understand if we're ever going to understand how we can have true peace with God. This is a pattern that we see Throughout Jesus' life, from the manger all the way to the cross, you have God, the, 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 the God who created and sustains everything, the God who's currently upholding the universe by the word of his power. God, this God goes low to save sinners. Now, that's the pattern that we see from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, not coming as a conquering king in power, but in the most vulnerable state imaginable and in the most humble, low circumstances you could ever, ever come up with. The same pattern throughout his entire life, all the way up to the cross, not achieving our salvation by conventional means, but by being tortured and put to death in a way that was meant to shame someone. From beginning to end, from manger to the cross, God goes low to save sinners. You've heard it already tonight, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in that form, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, notice how Paul, he says, he didn't, it's not just that he died. He subjected himself to that shameful, worst kind of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, can I tell you why that's such incredibly good news for us this Christmas? We live as broken people in a world that is desperately broken. Now, listen, you know you're broken, and I know I'm broken. We know things aren't right. right? We understand the realities of our sin. We feel its effects every day. I don't have to convince you that things aren't right. Now, the world communicates that it is up to you to fix 
yourself and make things right in order for you to experience peace. And the world provides you endless options to try to find that peace. Endless. But all of those things that the world offers from relationships to work to money to sex to power and prestige to comfort and all the rest of them, they all run contrary to how God saves. They're the opposite of how God saves. You see, all of those things would put you and me at the center and would elevate us. They would elevate us. But God doesn't work like that. God's never worked like that. God goes low to save his people. And so the only way that we can experience salvation and the peace that comes with that salvation is to be brought low in beautiful, beautiful submission to God's design. This is how God has worked throughout history, you see. That's why Proverbs 3 and then James 4 in quoting Proverbs 3 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'm almost done, I promise. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I mean this with every fiber of my being. The longing of every soul is to have true peace by being reconciled to the God who created and loves us. I promise you, no matter what you're chasing and what points of frustration there are, what your circumstances are, I promise you that the longing of your soul, what you are crying out for from the depths of your soul, whether you know it or not, is peace that comes from knowing God. Verse 14, where we started, is very clear. We experience peace when God is pleased with us. We experience peace when God is pleased with us. Now, the lie from the enemy is that God will only be pleased with you when you measure up to his standards. In other words, you have to do things in order to be reconciled to God. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell, I promise. There is only one thing that pleases God. And it's not when you go high. It's not when you achieve things. It's when you go low. It's when you turn from your pride. You turn from seeking your own glory. You turn from your own efforts to make things right. And you embrace the gospel, which is God's plan for salvation. I'll make it even more simple. The only way that God will be pleased with us is when we are found in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. For those of you who attend here regularly, you know that we're studying the Gospel of Mark right now. And at the beginning of Mark, there's the account of Jesus being baptized by John 
in the River Jordan. It's beautiful. It's this incredible scene. And as Mark uh, uh, records the scene, he says that as Jesus comes out out of the water, the heavens are ripped open. In fact, it's the same Greek language where, where, where the curtain is ripped in two after Jesus completes this work on the cross. The heavens are ripped open. And then you see the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. And then the Father, God the Father, speaks audibly. You guys remember what he said? It's Mark 1.11. He said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Church, please hear this. The father is pleased with his son. His son who stepped out of heaven and took on flesh. His son who lived in perfect submission to the Father's will. His son who lived the life that we could not, a life completely free from sin. His son who took our sin upon his shoulders. His son who paid the price for that sin that we deserve to pay. His son who defeated Satan's sin and death by raising victorious over all of them. His son whose name has now been exalted above every name. The father is pleased with his son. And the father is pleased with us when we are found in covered by his son so the question is how can we be found in the son it's simple it's simple you've heard it laced throughout the gathering tonight you understand that you are utterly utterly hopeless on your own that, that, that your sin has separated you from a God who loves you and that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make that right. You can't fix that. But God has made a way. This is the good news. This is the evangelion. This is the gospel that God has made a way that through the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, you now have access to the God who loves you and all that's required from you. Get this. All that's required is belief. It's belief. You believe that this baby was born for you and died for you and was raised from the dead to set you free. That he is the only way that you can be reconciled to God. If you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with God, this is how you can finally, finally put an end to all this turning, spinning your wheels in this fruitless pursuit. Like, like, like Solomon says, it's like chasing after the wind. It goes nowhere. This idea that I can fulfill myself and find satisfaction myself and find peace myself, all of that can end. You can know how to finally experience peace by placing your trust in what Jesus has already accomplished for you. And listen, if you're here tonight and you're like, yes and amen, I got that. I've been walking with him for a long time. Listen, I want to say that the way that you and I continually grow in grace and experience his peace is the same way. It's to abide in Jesus. It doesn't change. 
It's not like, man, I'm in him and he's covering me and now I've been reconciled to God the Father. This is amazing. Now I'm going to do stuff on my own. No. We abide in him. Go read John 15. We abide in him. We realize that intimacy with Jesus Christ, being found in him, it's not just the way to be reconciled to God. It's also the thing that fuels our transformation over time into his likeness. Praise the Lord. I want to pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to sing some more, I think. Um, I, I want to pray a text that, that, that Craig actually read this morning out of Colossians 1 for our scripture reading. I just want to pray this back to God, verses 11 through 14. So would you bow, would you bow your heads with me? This is Colossians 1, 11 through 14, and I'm going I'm to fashion this uh, in, in the shape of a prayer to God. God, may we be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and for patience and with joy. Father, we give thanks to you because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thank you, Father. God, you have delivered us from the dominion of darkness, God. You've transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. It's in Him we have redemption. It's only in Him that we find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Father, we praise you. May Christ be lifted high tonight. Amen.